Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Good afternoon. This is Jay Levine, your editor of Antitrust Law Source and, of course, and host of the Antitrust Law Source uh, podcast. And I'm delighted to be here with my uh, partner, Luke Fedlam, who heads the Porter Wright Sports Practice. How you doing, Luke? I'm great, Jay. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Uh, first, we want to wish everyone out there um, and hope that you are all safe and healthy and that you and your loved ones continue to be so. You know, I think we have a pretty cool uh, podcast here. Not not too often do we get to talk about sort of our, our passions, both law and sports. But yes. with Luke gets to do that every day. Yes. I'm incredibly jealous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, given some of the uh, recent events concerning the NCAA, we thought it was kind of a, a good opportunity to talk to everyone about uh, some of the antitrust litigation that the NCAA has been going through. And also kind of get the student-athlete perspective on that through Luke, who represents um, many, many, many student-athletes, current and former. And I guess just because sports practice means so many different things to so many different people, Luke, why don't you explain to everybody what it is you do every day? Absolutely. Um, And thank you for that introduction, Jay. You know, the sports law practice at Porter Wright really is focused on protecting and educating athletes, individual professional athletes in all phases of their their life and career. So uh, we're not an agent or an agency, so we don't represent the players with their player contract, but it really is like being general counsel to a professional athlete. So anything and everything that they're going to sign their name to, we get involved with. So whether that ends up being helping them as they're making their selection for what agent they want to go with and reviewing their agent agreements, marketing agent agreements, endorsement deals, estate planning, tax issues, real estate, due diligence on investment deals. It really is. It just runs the gamut because ultimately my passion is on making sure that these athletes are protected and they know what's going on around them so that they can have that positive impact on themselves, their families, and their communities. Because we all know sports doesn't last their entire life. And so we want to make sure that they uh, are set up for success uh, long after they're done playing. Wow. Doubly envious now. <laughs> um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems I know when I, when I was a kid and the like, you, you had certain sports stars who sort of set themselves up in business and, and the like, but that seemed to be sort of the minority. Whereas now it seems to be that guys coming out of college are far more prepared to and understand their this this is a short window and and they also want to make an impact on society they seem to be creating foundations and and, and things like that is that just am i correct in that sense yeah absolutely you're, you're right on a lot has changed i think you know a lot of times people like to get if you use basketball as as an example a lot of people like to get in this argument about you know, it was Jordan the best or what about LeBron, right? And this this back and forth. <laughs> and, 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 and let me say, really, they both have had a monumental impact on sports, even outside of the actual game itself, right? And the way I look at it is Jordan was, I mean, just huge when it came to the globalization of the sport, etc. But in the same light, I look at LeBron as when it comes to the empowerment of a player, he has had a massive impact. Um, when when you look at the team around him, the way he's developed his team of advisors around him, because um, they were just friends kind of growing up with him, uh, but he made them get, you know, get that education, get that understanding, that real world practical understanding. So I feel like LeBron has really led this notion of younger athletes 
being more empowered and realizing the business of the sport going on around them. Real quick, you know, I, I, you and I love this stuff and we could talk about it forever, but I'll, I'll share one story. So um, in 2009, Pablo Torre wrote this article for Sports Illustrated called How and Why Professional Athletes Go Broke. It was the seminal study in the whole idea of athletes just literally losing their money. And a lot of people think, oh, well, just because they would spend too much. And yes, that was absolutely part of it. But the other part of it was players who would get taken advantage of on deals. They would invest in things that didn't actually exist because an advisor or a friend told them to invest in this and they could get this return. That was the article that talked about 78% of football players being broke within two years of when they get done playing. So I think you look at LeBron and what he did with his career. You look at that study, that, that story that came out in 2009 and over the last kind of decade, we've really seen a change where athletes are coming out much more connected to the world around them and being in a place where they really want to um, have that business success that they see in some of these other athletes. I, I will have to correct you. You forgot to mention one of the greatest players that ever lived in the NBA and probably who uh, stands as almost the par paragon of that kind of player deciding that I am going to have success in every venture of my life, Magic Johnson. Absolutely. Yes, you are correct. You are absolutely right. And Magic, if you're listening, my apologies. Yeah, I, and Magic, if you're listening, it was Jay Levine who, who, who <laughs> um, full disclosure, I am a lifelong Lakers fan, and uh, and Magic um, was obviously my favorite player um, uh, growing up. But, but what he has done post the NBA is nothing short of spectacular. But that seems to be now hopefully getting to be more the rule than the exception. And I will tell you, um, and i give you one anecdote. I was the junior lawyer on the McNeil trial team that won free agency for football players uh, against the NFL. That, yes. that trial was concluded in 92. One of the eight uh, plaintiffs was a guy by the name of Frank Minifield, who was a, uh, a safety or D-back, I'm not sure which, for the Cleveland Browns. And when he came for his deposition, he was dressed in a suit with a briefcase and sort of we, we queried him about it. And it, it, his response was incredible. His response is, this is work. And so I dress to go to work. I bring a briefcase yes. all the time. And that just showed me an incredible sort of mindset. And it seems that that mindset, whether they're carrying the briefcase now or not, is has, has really taken hold, especially with people like you sort of helping helping the athletes realize their their visions. But um, two things happened this week. The Ninth Circuit came down um, affirming a decision that of a uh, trial from last year where there was a class of student athletes that had complained about the NCAA's um, cap on what they call grant in aid. And there was also a recent lawsuit filed on behalf of current student athletes against the NCAA's um, what they call the nil rules, the name, image, and likeness rules. Just to go back, let's provide, uh, as you know, Luke, NCAA has been has been embroiled in antitrust litigation for years. Yes. Right? Uh, you know, even back since in 1984, I think, you know, certain conferences, certain schools sued the NCAA for their restrictions on, on the, the school's uh, ability to actually negotiate for themselves to be on television more often than the NCAA had allowed. But back, uh, I guess it's already 11 years ago. Wow, time flies. Uh, Ed O'Bannon from UCLA 
sued the NCAA because essentially the NCAA makes billions off the name, image, and likeness of student athletes. Can you sort of just give people kind of a perspective of what the NCAA essentially reaps in as a, as a result of the student athletes? Yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, the the, the NCAA is really bringing in so much, and it, and it comes oftentimes right through their TV deals. Um, that's where we see, you know, the bulk of their of their kind of assets coming in. At this point, we're somewhere in the middle ish of the March Madness basketball deal that they have. That's at, at, I think in total over twenty billion dollars, right, and works out to over a billion dollars a year. I mean, it's and what is what is that, right? March Madness really is. It's college basketball that has been marketed and put together such that um, people will take off work, people will start pools, people will do whatever they can for those weekends in March and you know, culminating at the, end, at the beginning of April to watch this experience. And this experience is all built on these individual athletes and all that the individual athletes bring you know, to the team and obviously to the, to the sport itself. Yeah, and, and the NCAA um, essentially licenses the images and the names and likenesses of these players to video games like EA and to all sorts of um, entities. And um, it's pretty incredible how much they make. So Ed O'Bannon basically said, it's not fair. Uh, you know, you're taking my name and making money off of it. And Ed O'Bannon was a pretty big star at UCLA basketball. And... Um, and said it's unfair. And basically, Section 1 of the Sherman Act says no two distinct economic entities can get together to have an agreement in restraint of trade. And essentially, he was saying, you schools, because all the NCAA is is a bunch of schools and conferences, yes. you guys are getting together to agree to basically say the students can't get any money when you're making the money off of us. And ultimately, he won. But in terms of... The court had ruled that, you know, caps on on certain educational expenses was inappropriate. Also set up a system for them to get paid a fairly low amount, but get paid somewhat after they leave school so as not to, quote unquote, affect their amateur status. Uh, the Ninth Circuit basically said, well, that kind of after school thing, we're not sure is really necessary uh, and, and overturned that. But that did kind of set up for a few years where schools were able to give student athletes a little bit more than simply what it costs to educate them, right? Mm -hmm. They were able to get, you know, sort of money for computers and, right. and so, per diems. That's right. So they'd get these per diems, they'd get these stipends, they would get a little bit more. But again, I think the 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 idea is that it really has been a little bit more um it's not yeah. it's not a significant you know increase in in by any means or any stretch of the imagination right so so then a few years ago a new class action was instituted that was essentially suing sued about these grant in aid basically saying that listen you schools don't want to compete for the student athlete by you know sort of how much you'd be able to you know, give to them in terms of stipends, or even if you want to call it out payment, you don't want to compete for these students, even though you're competing for the coaches, you're competing for the ADs, you're competing for everything else, but you don't want to compete for the athletes. And that's just wrong. The athlete should be able to choose which school he or she wants to go to. 
And part of that decision should be able to be how much that school is willing to provide for them, uh, no matter what, without any limitations. And frankly, that suit was tried and the, the players essentially won in 2019 for the most part. And the Ninth Circuit just the other day affirmed that trial victory. So they're going to have to redo their kind of grant and aid policies. But the name image likeness issue is still sort of undecided, although the Ninth Circuit's decision may be a harbinger of uh, they're not going to like any restrictions on name image likeness either. And frankly, two student athletes um, have just sued on behalf of class of student athletes saying that the name image likeness rules that the NCAA has um, violate the antitrust laws. And even though the NCAA is in the middle of trying to change those rules, the the players are alleging, listen, those those changes are too little and way too late. And I believe I know that one of the proposals is whatever deal a student athlete gets has to go before a review board to make sure that the payments aren't quote unquote excessive. And I'm sure that just gets your blood boiling. <laughs> it, it, it is right. I mean, it, the, because the, the challenge is, and I've had a lot of conversations with people is that you have a situation where oftentimes the, the athletic administrators and, and they're asked to do a lot, right? I mean, they're asked the compliance department at schools are asked to do a lot in terms of enforcing these rules that the, that the NCAA has, has, has come up with. And, and again, to your point, the name, image, and likeness, the nil rules, aren't in place necessarily yet, but what we're but what we we do see is that from a compliance perspective, even a lot of athletic administrators don't really have the kind of real world practical um, understanding of what is what's market, right? What is expected? What is normal, right? So so in 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 the role that that we do um, hit the firm working with athletes on endorsement deals, I can tell you after looking at hundreds of these deals. You know what's a, what's normal for somebody to get paid on a, a baseball card or a, ba- a basketball card, a trading card deal, or what's normal for you know sending out tweets or what have you, social media postings, etc. Like because we see that regularly, so we can establish and understand what market is. But schools, they're not in that business. And if you look at either the intern, in-house legal folks or compliance, that's just not where their expertise lies. And so. The idea of them, of the NCAA having this review board, it's just something that just doesn't really kind of make sense. And at the end of the day, when you look at it, a player's market value is going to be based on what that particular company feels like that player is worth in the promotion of Mm -hmm. their goods or services. Exactly. We want the free market to determine it, not a review board. And obviously, the NCAA has long promoted this sense that, listen, College athletics is all about amateurism, Mm -hmm. that the way you define college athletics different from professional athletics is the fact that college athletics, they're in school, that this is, if you will, a part-time job for them, and that they're not getting paid the quote-unquote big bucks that everyone else is. And that's, that's part of the appeal of the product, as the opinions have shown and as the lawsuit alleges. You know, every time we relax those rules, that has not shown to have any impact on the demand for the product. Uh, More and more and more people are watching. And frankly, you know, whether, you know, Kyle Murray or Joe Burroughs got paid in college millions of dollars is probably not going to affect my desire 
to watch the Rose Bowl or the Orange Bowl or my local uh, college. So, that's right. I, you know, so that's the, you know, they're, they're, they don't want athletes being paid excessively because they think otherwise that sort of diminishes their amateurism. And we'll have to see what the court says about that. But <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the part that's just, that's, that's just funny about this is, is how, who, who is the NCAA to determine what's excessive, right? Because, because what is excessive? Because think about how this will actually play out. The way that a brand is going to determine what they want to pay to a particular student athlete is going to be based on what they see that student athlete being able to do um, in terms of the reach that they have for their consumer base. So, you know, for the NCAA to say, okay, you have this, let's say, um, you know, Joe Burrows his freshman year, right? And he's at Ohio State and he's not playing and all that kind of stuff versus where he ended up in going as a first round draft pick or pick any other player, especially in football, that has to be there for multiple years. It's going to be in the valuation of that person's talent and reach. And there are going to be companies that are going to say, we're going to either take a flyer or we're going to take, you know, we're going to put a big investment in this player because we think that the future is good for this person. Whereas if the NCAA I mean, they're typically, you know, are looking at someone where they're at today. So you're, I just don't see how that necessarily works out. Now, let's just be clear, though, right? There, there is going to be a compliance component to this that is going to make sense. And that compliance component is going to say, okay, a, a long name, image, and likeness, it looks like players are going to be able to, you know, start their own businesses, right? Have their own business entities, if they will. Now, yes, there's going to be a, you need to be some oversight, which could be incredibly challenging on, is someone starting a business just to bring on an investor that can throw money into that business as just a way to just straight out pay the player? And, and, and I, I get that. And there's going to be some, some need to figure out what that is. But when it comes to truly like managing the earning potential of these players, it really is going to be the market that should set what that value is, not an overall review board. That's exactly what these sort of lawsuits have, have been alleging. And, and the and point is, I mean, I think about this and uh, one can make the argument that if you allow, especially in basketball, if you allow college athletes to get these endorsement deals or whatever, they may stay in college a little bit longer yes. because they won't necessarily, I mean, listen, the NBA is still paying a lot more, but okay, so you think about the the real studs who who jumped from high school to college, you know, Kobe, LeBron, right, Kevin Garnett. What would have happened had they been able to, you know, Nike says, listen, you know, Kobe, you're, you're, you're the number one or LeBron, you're the number one. You're, you're the, you're the next Jordan. I want to get you now while you're in high school. And I'll tell you what, you go to a power school and whatever, and you'll be making, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, ten million a year in endorsements. So you don't feel the need to have to go to the NBA right away. I don't know what LeBron would have said. Maybe he would still have said no, but. You know, the, the calculus is a lot different. That's exactly right. I mean, we see it this year right now with uh, the G League, right? So the NBA said, okay, yeah. G League, you can come, you can make up to $500,000 for this one season, let's say. Um, and the better part is you can take on endorsement deals, right? So so now instead of saying, okay, well, you know, going to college where I might just be a one and done and I'm really only there, you know, to play basketball for that seven month period of time that I'm there, you know what, I'm I'm going to focus on, you know, getting developed through the G League, et cetera. And to your point, though, the and I don't know the statistics, so I'm not going to try to throw numbers out there, but there's a significant uh, notice of college basketball players 
who can now test the waters and declare for the NBA draft. Right. And there are a number of them who have declared who then don't get drafted, but they've lost their eligibility when they have gone past the deadlines and everything because they think they can make it at the next level. Listen, a lot of people don't necessarily understand the real world scenarios that some of these athletes are in. A lot of athletes don't come from necessarily great family and home yeah. situations and money. Listen, even with the stipends that schools have started to, to add, it's not like you're just putting money in a player's pocket. Oftentimes they're sending it back to their family um, for right. bills and things like that. So this idea of, yeah, I get it. Education is a great way to, is a gateway to great things in life. But at the same time, when you have a particular skill, you should be able to uh, monetize and commercialize that skill to the best of your ability. We, we do it. And I think this is, you know, some of, I think it's lawsuits that chip away, obviously. And then it's legislation that ultimately chips away at what the NCAA kind of does. But, but at a certain point, you, you have to say, there's got to be some fairness for the player themselves. Absolutely. And from a legal perspective, I mean, obviously there may be, you know, we're presenting sort of one side. And, right, you know, right. Obviously there's, this NCAA will have its, you know, why it believes these restrictions are necessary in order to promote the product. But at the end of the day, you are restricting the player. Now, whether those those restrictions are reasonable or not is for a court or a jury to decide. Obviously, I think everybody listening to this can figure out where you and I lie right, okay. on, this, on this issue. Um, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, standing here right now, a player is prohibited from essentially monetizing and capitalizing on his skills, on his fame, on his, on his hard work, um, his name, image, and likeness. And the only entities that are actually profiting from it are the NCAA or uh, the school itself. And, um, and that seems fundamentally unfair. And obviously in a free market, the division between who's getting what revenue would just be de determined by you know, negotiation and buy what the market clearance price is. That, and that, that's, that's right. Is that what we want? Right, right, exactly. But think about this for, for as, a, as a hypothetical, since, since, you know, we like hypotheticals, right? But, but this, this idea that there are schools that make over $100 million from apparel companies, from the Nikes, the Under Armors, the Adidas, yeah. et cetera, right? And they do that because the, the schools and Nike, let's say, will pay a school $150 million because they now have control over this entire body of student athletes, you know, wearing this brand, et cetera, right? Then it can go out to fans and, 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 and the like. But imagine now if you're a player in high school about to go to college and you're at that level where Adidas and Nike and other apparel brands are looking at you and want to do a deal with you. What I think is fascinating is you could have a situation where you have a player who decides to sign with Adidas and do his own deal with Adidas or her own deal with Adidas and still go to a Nike school. And I'm sure then there would be some requirements from the school's perspective now that when it's a, an official team activity or official team appearance, you have to be mm -hmm. in the Nike gear. But do you think Nike's still going to pay the same $150 million to the school for their, you know, kind of branding deal with the school? And I think the answer is no, right? Because they won't have as similar control and therefore they'll say, okay, well, let's get after some of these elite of the elite, right? We're not talking now, again, we're not talking about every student athlete is going to have these opportunities at this right. big national brand level, right? It's still going to be the elite of the elite, but those elite of the elite should have those opportunities to decide for themselves.
Well, and even further down the totem pole, you know, we're, it's a matter of degree, but, you know, even less well-known names have some endorsement um, opportunities and they should be able to capitalize on those. But, you know, turning your hypothetical around a little bit. So let's say, uh, again, let's say uh, a university has a contract with Nike and that university wants to get this high school kid and this high school kid is thinking of going to Adidas. Well, you know what? One of the things they can do is say, listen, we will pay you or we will do whatever so that you don't sign with Adidas. You come with us and you're fully a Nike. So in other words, they some of that $150 million that they're getting now are going to that high school kid, you know, because they're competing because there may be Adidas schools who are who are, and yeah. let's not kid ourselves, every school is, you know, every power school is associated with some, someone right. and something. That's right. It, it's just another way of, of sort of divvying up the pie, but just allowing the student athlete to get what seems to be fairly his or hers. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, there's obviously legislation in California, in, in uh, Florida, and maybe other states um, thinking about it too, about prohibiting schools in their states from restricting athletes, uh, student athletes' um, ability to negotiate their own name, image, likeness rights. And, That's right. uh, you know, the NCAA is asking Congress to do something on the federal level to kind of preempt the states. Um, and obviously, there's all these court cases. So, this is, this is going to be sort of how this ultimately resolves is going to be sort of fascinating. And of course, you have the labor decision where I, Northwestern, I think, was the one the right to unionize, um, which I, I just find, you know, almost mind blowing. And so, uh, so, but listen, this is a billion, 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 trillion dollar industry. Um, and what we're really talking about is how does the pie get cut up? But uh, I think there's room for enough for everyone in the student athlete. It's time that he or she gets uh, her fair share. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll see. It's going to and we're going to know some of these things relatively soon because Florida just signed their law into effect. It's going to go into effect July 1st of uh, 2021. So we're going to see we're going to see soon what what's going to happen. The NCAA's rules are supposed to be voted on in January um, as it relates to name, image and likeness and go into effect, you know, the beginning of the 2021 academic year. So uh, this stuff's going to be happening. It's going to be happening soon. We'll see. We, we certainly shall. I'm assuming the NCAA may actually appeal the Ninth Circuit decision to the Supreme Court. So we will see what happens um, on all fronts. But uh, this is a fascinating topic. And uh, we'll try to come back to you guys. Uh, keep fighting the good fight. Uh, Let's do it. Uh, why, don't, why don't you tell people if they want to if they want to ask you or get in touch with you, how do they get in touch with you? Sure. Um, you can find me at Luke Fedlam on social media. So that's Luke, L-U-K-E. Last name is F, like Frank, E-D-L-A-M. So at Luke Fedlam. Um, you can also find me on the Porter Wright website. If you just search sports law, I'll pop right up. And feel free to uh, reach out, send me an email, or, or give me a call. Excellent. I'm at J-J-Y-L Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E, on Twitter. And I'm on LinkedIn. Um, and just uh, letter J L E V M E at porterright.com. I'm on the Porter Right side. I co chair the Antitrust and Consumer Protection Group. I'd love to hear from you guys. We look forward to uh, talking about this in the future. Thank you very much, Luke. Stay safe, stay healthy. I hope uh, your, your family and loved ones continue to stay safe and stay healthy. And hopefully soon we'll actually get to meet 
again face to face exactly than over a webcam but exactly. uh but until then this has been great thank you very much thank you jay thank you Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.